Okay, people. So we have the Torah portion. We're going to go over quickly. And then I would like to give a very unorthodox approach to the question of religion versus spirituality. So let's start with the beginning of the Torah portion. And obviously the reason why I picked this week to have that topic is because this is the Torah portion in which we receive the Torah at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. So it's a perfect, perfect week to discuss this topic. So first, let's go over the Torah portion itself with a few insights here and there, and then we'll get to the main topic. So Yisro was the father-in-law of Moses. When Moses ran away from Egypt, he ends up in Midian, and in Midian, he comes across at the well of Yisro's daughters who are trying to just water the, the flock, and the, others, uh, the other shepherds are being not very nice to them, and Rashi tells us the reason why the Kosa uh, sages, that the reason why the others weren't nice is because that Yisro had served and studied each and every type of idol worship and came to the conclusion that there is only one God, denounced all the other idols, and therefore all the locals were very upset with him and kind of... Um, excommunicated the family. Moses helps, and the, the girls come home early. The father knows that they're having problems because of his decision. He says, how did you come home so early today? He said, someone helped us. They bring Moses home. He says, why did you leave him there? Come bring him home. And Moses ends up marrying one of the daughters of Yisrael. So Yisrael is the father-in-law. After the burning bush episode, Moses goes back to Yisrael, receives permission to go ahead and go back to Egypt to see how his brethren are doing. And it says that he brought his wife and the child, the children, and the two children, two sons, and they go to Egypt, which leads us to a simple question. It says here that Yisro is coming to the desert, coming out into the desert to Moshe, and he's bringing his daughter, Moses' wife, and he's bringing their two children, Gershom and Eliezer. But one second, the verse told us that Zipporah, Gershom, and Eliezer went to Egypt with Moses. How did they end up by back at, their, at her father's home that they have to now be brought? So our sages tell us that when Moses came with his wife and children and God told Aaron to go out of Egypt, your brother is coming, greet him. So Aaron greets Moses and says, who are these? And Moses answers, these are my wife and my children. And he said, and Aaron says, we're trying to get everyone out. You're bringing more in. Let them go to back to their father's home so they won't have to go through the whole ordeal. And that's how they ended up back by their father's home. And now they're coming. So Yisro brings them because he heard all the great news. And Yisro is told by Moses all the miracles that took place, and Yisro blesses God. Now, I want to share with you something. The next verse after that says, Now I know that God is greater from all the idol worships. And from here, from the words, the all the idols, we know that he actually researched. He was a spiritual seeker. He was looking. And that's how he knows that now God is the only one and only, one and only God. Now, you should know that Yisro had seven names. He used to be called Yeter. Then he was called Yitro. He's called Reuel. There's an argument about one name. And just to share with you that when I was in Yeshiva, they used to joke around, why did Yisro have seven names? Because he had seven daughters. So he had to make seven weddings and he had to file bankruptcy after each one and start over with a new name. That was a joke they said in Yeshiva. But really there's a reason for each one of these names. And Yeter, it's because there's a whole extra portion in the Torah, thanks to Yisro, which we're about to see. Yisro, they added a Vavan once he converted and accepted Torah and mitzvot. So that's what's going on here. What happens, he comes, to, he comes to Moses 
And now there's a huge argument when exactly he came. Did he come before God gave the Torah and he was there when God gave the Torah? Did he come after God gave the Torah? So there's whole different opinions of what happens. I can just share with you that it always was so mind boggling to me that if we're going to say he came after the giving of the Ten Commandments, that's going to mean that the only Jewish people that were not by the Ten Commandments was Moses' wife and his two sons. And even Yisro, who converted, he was also, he became a Jew. So this is really mind boggling to me, but I must tell you that there's different opinions. Now, the Torah in general does not work in chronological order for whatever reason. Now, all of a sudden in the next verse, we didn't learn about the Ten Commandments yet. We didn't learn about the 40 days and 40 nights. We didn't learn about breaking the tablets. We didn't learn about going back up and, and praying that the Jews should not be annihilated. We didn't learn about going back up a third time and coming back with the second tablets. We didn't learn any of this. And yet the next verse jumps past all of that to the day after Moses came down with the second tablets. Now, you know that Moses came down with the second tablets on the day of Yom Kippur, which is the deeper meaning of why Yom Kippur became the day of atonement, because that was the full day of when, that was the day in which the Jews were fully forgiven and they received the second tablets. In places where it says that the day of the giving of the Torah is considered like the wedding day, most people make a mistake and think that that verse is talking about, that teaching is talking about the Shavuot day. But no, the Shavuot day was a betrayal, a chuppah, and Yom Kippur, when he brought back the two tablets, that's when it's called the day of the wedding. Now, with that being said, the day after Yom Kippur, when the Jewish people received this whole new set of laws, they all had questions. So they were all lined up. And who was the only one who could answer these questions was Moses. So Yisro is watching as Moses is single-handedly dealing with all the questions and disputes of all the Jewish people. Now, we are taught that the disputes of Jewish people are not easy to handle because the Jewish people are not quick to accept a verdict that isn't to their favor. So all of a sudden, they'll come up with a new and a this. But what's about that? And Moses was handling it all by himself. Hence, Yisro sees Moses doing this. And he says to Moses, what are you doing? And he says, they've come to ask questions. They've come to settle disputes. I have to answer them. So he tells Yisro, his father-in-law tells him that you're going to topple and they're going to topple. It's impossible. You have to set up a judicial system. And obviously Moses would teach the judicial system, the judges, and they would then handle cases and there would be different levels. There would be one rabbi over 10 families and another rabbi over 10 of those and another rabbi over 100 of those. And you'd have different levels of pyramid and on top of the pyramid will be you. And that which they can't answer, they'll come to you. But that which you have taught them, let them handle and of course, immediately he says, do this if God agrees to it. He understands that he has a brilliant idea, but God has to be okay with it. And Moses asks God, and God says yes, and a judicial system is set up. So first of all, understand the humility of what's going on here. Moses spent 40 days and 40 nights learning with God. He did that three times, actually twice, the second time he was actually praying. And then he brings down the holy tablets. I mean, and now he's gonna go ahead and take advice from his father-in-law who just showed up in town, what we call in Yiddish, a greener, you know, what, what he's gonna give. And it's unbelievable, this one verse, verse 24. And Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law but yes, and he did call Asher Amor, everything that he said. So that humility is, is so unbelievable. And for me, when I think about this, I always have this picture of the Rebbe of blessed memory. There's an unbelievable picture of the Rebbe 
walking up to 770, carrying a bag he brought from home, his work, the, answering the letters that were sent to him. And you see in the picture, the Rebbe is turning and there's a little kid looking up at the Rebbe talking. And it's just so unbelievable. There is no superiority. There is no inferiority in the search of truth. Every communication needs to be viewed as a communication from God. And that humility of taking your precious time and listening to who God has chosen as the messenger to bring you a message, to bring you the opportunity to help another, it's just amazing. I do want to point out that Yisro told Moses that he should look for certain qualities. And when Moses looks for the qualities, we'll see later when he recounts it in Deuteronomy, he couldn't find all the qualities that was necessary. And he had to settle for what there was. Which, by the way, another important lesson for us. Many of us suffer from perfectionism. Either it's going to be perfect or we're not going to do it at all. And Moses teaches us, deal with what you have. As you grow, you can perfect, you can get better, you can replace, but you've got to start with what you have. And then it goes into another joke in yeshiva, they say, Moses was begging his father-in-law to stay, to stay, to stay. And his father said, no, I have to go back to my family. I have to teach them everything I've just learned and then go through the conversion process with all of them. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, after it says that Moses took his advice, verse 27 says, And Moses sent his father-in-law going. Obviously, the simple meaning is that when you don't just let someone go, you, you walk him out. You... But in yeshiva, they said, Moses said, oh, my God, you're starting to give advice. <laughs> Go home. Obviously, that's not true. That's just a yeshiva joke. But anyway, and then we begin with the story of how they arrived at Mount Sinai. In other words, now we're going back in time. We spoke about the 120 days later when Moses is now after Yom Kippur, 121 days later when Moses is dealing with teaching the new laws. And then we're going back now to 120 days or even more than 120 days, 126 days, 127 days, depends on the opinion, where the Jews are arriving at Midbar Sinai, at, at the Sinai Desert, at the, at the foot of the, of the uh, mountain. Now, very interesting. The verse says, shom, when they arrived there on the Rosh Chodesh, the first day of the third month, it says they rested there. Now, Vayichan is singular. Plural is Vayachanu. So the simple interpretation is, because it says Vayichan Shom Yisrael is dealing with the entire Jewish people as a single unit, and therefore it's using the singular term. However, this itself tells us, our sages tell us, that throughout all the 40 years, at Mount Sinai, at, in the desert, there was only one time that the Jewish people truly camped as one people, as one heart. No disputes, no complaining, just peace. And that's how they reached to Mount Sinai. Now, I want to share with you something that we say in the Passover Seder, by the Passover Seder in the Haggadah. We have that famous song, Dai Da Yenu, Dai Da Yenu. And Da Yenu means it would have been enough. If God would have only done this, it would have been enough. If God would have only done this, it would have been enough. And we keep on going further and further and further. If you would have only taken us to Egypt, if you would have only given us the mana, if you would only, and then at the end we say how much more so that he did this and this and this and this and this and this and this, definitely we should be grateful and thank God. Now, one that is, if he only did, reads as follows. If he only brought us to Mount Sinai and never gave us the Torah, Dayenu. Now the commentaries ask, what would that mean? What was the purpose of camping at Mount Sinai other than to receive the Torah? We weren't supposed to be at Mount Sinai. We're supposed to go to Israel. We're making a stop at Mount Sinai to receive the Torah. 
So if he would have brought us to, to Mount Sinai and he would have given us the Torah, what's the Dayenu? What was the whole purpose of it? Now you know. Our sages say, if God would have only brought us to Mount Sinai to experience what it means to have true peace, compassion, and love, and unity in your heart, and he would have never given us the Torah, he would have just given us that experience, Dayenu. That would have been enough for us. Now, I want to just tell you something else. There is a whole schedule here. The Talmud and Tractic Shabbos has an argument exactly which day was done what. I'm going to just share with you in brief, but I want to share with you a very interesting teaching in the Talmud because we're talking about unity. The Talmud says like this, the Torah of three was given in the month of three to the people of three. What does that mean? What that means is the Torah is made up of three parts. The Torah has the Pentateuch, the prophets, and the scriptures. The Jewish people are made up of three. We have the Kohanes, that's the priests that serve in the half a tribe Levi, which served in the temple. There are the Levites, which also served, but didn't have that stature of where the, of where the Kohanim were able to go. And then there were the other 11 tribes, which were the Israelites. The month the Torah was given in is the third month. We left Egypt in Nisan, which is the first month. We traveled and through the month of Iyar, we came to Mount Sinai and received the Torah on the sixth day of Sivan. Now, what's the big thing? What, what's, what's, oh, the, the, the Torah of three given to the people of three in the month of three. What, what's, what's the sages? I'm so sorry, excuse me. What are the sages teaching us? So in Kabbalah and Hasidus, number one is not unity because there's only one. There's no one to get along with or not to get along with. Number two represents division. There's a right and there's a left. Number three, which is set up like a triangle, the number three in, in Kabbalah and Hasidus is all about the compilation of these two. And when there's the compilation of these two, then there's the dot on top, which is the supernal crown. Which that means, what that means is that the ultimate definition of unity is not when there's only one opinion. It's not when there's two opinions, but it's when there's two opinions and each can see the other's opinion. I saw in Hasidus, the writing of a, the, the teaching says like this, the Kabbalistic definition of a wise person is one who, in, who can entertain two opposing antithetical opinions at the same time. So this is what the Torah is really telling us, that we need to be a Torah of three, not I'm right, you're right, you're wrong, but rather there's every opinion has its sources in truth. The people have to be made up of three. We cannot have what the um, Beatles wanted in their song, Imagine. No, we don't want homogenous. We want individualism, but with unity and respect. And we need to be willing to experience the month. We need to be able to have experiences which sometimes jive with us, sometimes are contrary to us, and we find our relationship and our unity in each and every one of them. Now, just to tell you how it worked, the Jewish people, when they camped, there was going to be a whole process. God was not going to force it upon them. God asked, tells Moses to ask them. And the Jewish people gave the incredible answer, which is the only answer on which any religion can be built. It has to first be faith, obedience, and then intellectual and emotional appreciation. If we're only willing to connect to faith with God on the level of intellectual and emotional appreciation, we have just made God as small as our minds are. So therefore, there has to first be the obedience, whether I understand or not, which allows me to live in the infinite omnipotence of God, rather than 
contracting God into what I do understand and what I don't understand. And that's all I can do and that's all I can connect with. Hence the Jews say, we will do and we will hear. And then after that, when God tells Moses to tell the Jewish people to prepare and he's gonna come up and God's gonna talk to him, the Jewish people say, no, we all wanna hear it from God directly. And Moses goes back to God and God says, oh, if they wanna hear from me, they all have to be in a pure state. Now, there's the laws of mikvah. Most of us only know the laws of mikvah that apply to a woman after she has her menstrual cycle. And the simple reason is because the menstrual cycle is a potential life that didn't actualize. So the uterus lines up and then the egg comes forth and there could have been life, but there wasn't life. So eventually the uterus lining has to decay and it all has to come out. Being that it is some type of connection to an experience of death, hence there's the laws of impurity, hence there has to be the process of the mikvah. Most, most people know that part. What people don't know is that when a man has a seminal discharge, he also becomes impure, obviously for the same reason. Now, if the seminal discharge is, let me just say it, is, is, in, is placed within the wife and therefore it didn't just go out to waste, therefore it's the process and therefore the man does not become impure. However, up to 72 hours, there could be that instead of the semen fertilizing the egg, it can come back out. And why 72 hours? Because after 72 hours, the semen has decayed and it's not doesn't have the law of semen. Therefore, up to 72 hours, the man can become impure if the semen does not fertilize and leaves the woman's body. Why am I giving you these laws right now? It's because you're about to hear that God told the Jewish people, if you want to hear from me, you need to separate yourselves from your wives for three days. I mean, not separate doesn't mean move out. It means not to have marital relationships in order that there should be no possibility that when I talk to you, you should be impure. Hence, if they would wait three days and then purify themselves, there is no possibility of them becoming impure through that process. And then there's the day in which God tells Moses that they will be a chosen nation and there will be a nation of, key, uh, of priestly kings and so forth and so on. God tells Moses, tell the Jewish people that they may not go up on the mountain when I come down on the mountain, lest they will be killed. And God gives special stations. There's a station for where Moses is going to go the highest. Then there's a station in which Aaron and his sons are going to be. Then there's a station where the elders are going to be. And then the rest cannot go onto the mountain. And God gives them a sign. As long as my presence will be there, there will be the sound of a chauffeur. And that's when you cannot be on the mountain. After the sound of the chauffeur stops, that means that God is saying, I have ascended from the mountain. And then the Jewish people can go up to the mountain. Now, I want to just share with you, and I don't want to get into this too much because I want to get into the topic we're meant to get into. But isn't it amazing, amazing on the difference the way the Jewish people treat Mount Sinai and the way the Muslims treat Mecca? It is unbelievable that Mount Sinai carries absolutely no holiness to the Jew to the point where we don't even know till this very day where Mount Sinai really is. There's now understandings that it's totally not where we thought it was. And actually, there's actually, I read a whole article that actually the Muslims were able to hold on to the identity of Mount Sinai and they actually call it in Arabic, the mountain of Moses. The Jewish people have never held on to it. We never do pilgrimage there. Quite the contrary. On the very holiday that God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people are commanded by God to go to Jerusalem, to Temple Mount and be at the temple. There is no going back to Mount Sinai. There's no holiness on it. You can graze your animals on Mount Sinai. Why? 
And I want to share with you briefly this simple explanation. Anything that comes from God as an imposition upon the physical will not remain because the imposition shatters. The mountain was burning. There was smoke. It wasn't a true permeation of the mountain. The only time that there can be a true permeation of the holiness upon the physical is when we from below are the ones that reach up. We refine ourselves. We yearn up and we draw down. That's why Mount Sinai was a miracle. By definition, miracles shatter the laws of nature. Hence, the mountain could not ever have internalized that holiness. The exact opposite is with the Temple Mount, that even now when we have no temple, it is prohibited for a Jew to go on to Temple Mount because it is holy. And the reason why that is holy is not God didn't come down on that mountain and say, this is the mountain and, and put it into flames. But rather it was King David yearning, the Jewish people collecting together, working together, sanctifying together, and creating a house for God. That creates a permeation of the divinity that's drawn. Hence, Temple Mount is holy, and Mount Sinai has absolutely no Jewish um, tradition of holiness or pilgrimage or anything like that. Okay, and then the Ten Commandments. We tear, again, we go through the whole process of how the Jewish people are preparing. And then there's an interesting thing. So the Jewish people are preparing, preparing, preparing. They're finally going to hear God talking to them, not through Moses, but directly to them. And they're all excited. And you can imagine what's going on. And boom, they hit the snooze button. All of a sudden, the morning that they're supposed to be at Mount Sinai, bright and early, they all slept in late. And because of that, until this very day, on the first night of Shavuos, were up all night to atone for what they did. Why were they sleeping? And the Rebbe gives us such an amazing insight because they haven't learned yet what the purpose of the Torah is. They thought that in a state of sleep where our waves, our brain waves are much more open, that would be the perfect situation to be as spiritual as we can and hence connect with the voice of God. What they didn't understand was that God didn't want that. He has a myriads of angels doing that. What he wants from us is to have our conscious egocentric mind grind away to become a conduit for the spirituality and the divinity of what the Torah is giving us. So he doesn't want us to be in a state of subconscious, spiritual, elevating. He wants us up. He wants us having the experience of being a physical human being with all the hormonal chemical surges through the brain. Stand there and hear me and then work on understanding me. So that's why they slept and that's why we atone for this until now. Another thing is the verse and the set, and I'm not gonna go through all the 10 commandments, um, I just want to share with you that all our sages have a huge question. The verse of the opening of the Ten Commandments says, and God spoke to all these things saying. Now, whenever the Torah has the word saying, lay more, what it usually means is that God told Moses to say this to the Jews. However, God was talking to all of us. So what is this to say? Let a more, to say. He's telling us to say. And there's a beautiful teaching in Hasidus. And it says as follows. When you and I study Torah, it says, whoever, whoever is reading and studying the Torah, God is right there reading it with us. More than that, we are taught that every single time that we study the Torah, we're not studying what God said 3,320-something 3, years ago, but rather 
We're studying what God is saying now. The Torah has to be the word of God now. It can never be the word of God of yesterday because then it defeats the whole purpose of the Torah being our Torah today. Hence, according to this Kabbalistic teaching, when God says, and God spoke all these words saying, God empowered us that when we study the Torah, we are having God saying it to us. And so much more than that, that the verse actually says that it's God's words on our tongue that we pronounce. And then we go through the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to share with you that the Ten Commandments are mind-boggling. You would think that God knows that this is the one and only opportunity. Everything else is going to be handed down through Moses, through the sages. You think that God would pick the ten most esoteric, fundamental religion, faith, wrap it all up. <laughs> don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and don't to give any false test test testifying and don't be jealous of your neighbor's wife and, and possessions. Really? And the first half, okay, the first half is also interesting. I am God, you God, don't have no idolatry, Ad idolatry, not adultery, right? And then and then you have keeping the Shabbat, and then you have <laughs> don't you don't, I'm sorry, other way around. First is the don't um don't say God's name in vain, then you have the keeping of Shabbat, then you have the honor your father and mother. It's amazing what God is telling us. And it's just very simple. Don't get uber spiritual and don't get uber physical. Don't kill, not because you understand that it's humane, because then you have a Dr. Corkin who thinks it's humane for euthanasia. Don't believe in God just because your parents told you believe in God. Bring it together, the mind and the faith. Bring it together. Don't kill. You know, I shared with someone, you know, in, in, uh, in Federation, in Greater Federation, I deal with Greater Miami Federation. They have a lot of humanitarian causes, humanitarian causes. And I once shared with the, uh, with the president of the Federation, I told him, you know, Jews don't have humanitarian causes. So what do you mean? I said, Jews only have divine causes. That's what we do. Israel flies to its enemy with planes of medicine and help, not because it's humanitarian, but because it's divine. Every human is created in the image of God. Thus, saving a human life, regardless if they're your enemy or not, is not a humanitarian cause. It's a divine cause. And the same thing, I am God, your God, can't be just faith. My father said it. My grandfather said it. I said it, I made sure my kids say it. No, we have to struggle with it. What does it mean that God is God? What does it mean that the infinite and the finite connect? What does it mean that God is, is present with me when I eat, when I dress, when I cry, when I dance? What does it mean that God is bothered by whether I eat lobster or get filter fish? Well, what, what is this? We need to understand, hence the two sides of the Ten Commandments. And then interesting enough, the last, last commandment after that, and again, I'm, I'm just going through quickly. The last commandment is that when you have the altar, which God is going to command us later at the end of the book of Exodus to build the tabernacle and it's going to have an altar outside. So don't walk up the altar with steps. Walk up the altar with a ramp. There's no steps leading up to the altar. There's only a ramp. Now, what is a simple reason for that? The simple reason is because the Kohanim only had four garments. They had short pants, which only went to their knees. They had a robe, they had a belt, and they had a hat. Hence, if you're going to pick up your foot to a higher step, from the step's point of view, it's going to be looking at your groin area. Hence, God says, don't disrespect the altar. Now, this is for me such an opportunity to share with you the one and most outstanding feature and legacy that my grandfather has left to me in my life. I shared this with you before. I would sit there, you know, a young kid fidgeting, always fidgeting, as you can probably see in the video, my legs are shaking. And 
what happened was I would just sit and he would talk to me and I would just take a napkin and just like, you know, start ripping it to pieces, you know, for no reason, just, you know, fidgeting. My grandfather would always laugh, at, you know, with, with a smile, not laughing at me. He'd always smile and say, Avrum, Vusatir, I tell you in English, what did the napkin do to you? And he would take it out of my hand, make it straight and put it back. And I always tell people, my greatest yearning is to have respect to a human being that my grandfather had to a napkin. Just a different generation. Just a different generation. This notion of putting your feet on a coffee table or anything like that, you know? My grandfather didn't let me put a secular book on the Shabbos table. He looked at me like I fell off the moon. Avrum, Shabbos. <laughs> I had to hide in the basement to study for a secular test because I wasn't allowed to on Shabbos. That, that, that consciousness that God is in everything, so everything has sanctity, it, it's, just, it's just something that I was blessed to have as a grandfather. Okay. Let's get into the unorthodox view of religion versus spirituality. So I want to share with you what bothers me by hearing people talk about this, pontificate about it. And I'm talking about from rabbis to spiritual people. It bothers me. And why does it bother me? Because the Rebbe said like this by a Fabrengen. The Rebbe said there are rabbis who said that you're allowed to use a microphone on Shabbat, which is actually wrong. But there were Orthodox rabbis who said it. And the Rebbe said by a Fabrengen, to know if you can use a microphone on Shabbat, you need to know two things. You need to know the microphone and you need to know Shabbat. The rabbis who know Shabbat but don't understand the microphone can't give a verdict. Those who know the microphone but don't know Shabbat can't give a verdict. And the Rebbe explained that he specifically was in Sibon and he knows how this works. And therefore, he knows what a microphone is. He knows what Shabbos is. And he's saying that you're not allowed to use a microphone on Shabbat. And by the way, it was the same thing the Rebbe said about the Israeli um, boats that would carry cargo. The Rebbe said you can't use it because he knew from his work. He worked in the, in the Williamsburg Marine for the army. He knew that it was, at those days, at least, it was impossible to have a ship moving and functioning an entire 24 hours without human intervention. Hence, he knew that there were humans desecrating the Shabbat to keep the boats going. And he said, I know how this works. I know what Shabbat is and you can't use it. Anyway, let's get to our point. I hear rabbis who I'm going to say they know what religion is, but they don't understand what spirituality is and they're pontificating upon it. I know people who are spiritual. They know what spirituality is. They work they work a spiritual program of recovery, but they don't know what religion is and they pontificate about it. I'm going to take the blessing that I have that I studied all my life in yeshiva. I continue studying daily till this very day. And I have been through working a program and a program in recovery is all about living a spiritual life. So I want to take a total different perspective what is religion and what is spirituality so let's start with religion people see religion as a set of rules a religious set of rules that comes with death penalties and comes with abominations comes with mandatory and you have to do it right. And if you did it, but you didn't do it right, it's not okay because that has nothing what to do with emotions. It has to do primarily with actions. So the, the Jewish woman can sit and meditate about Shabbat from Friday half day until after sunset. And she's gonna have such a beautiful emotional connection. But if she did not physically take the match, take the candles, light the candles, then there is no mitzvah that she did in sanctifying the Shabbat. 
And the man can sit and meditate all day long on Friday and everything and be too busy to help in the house because he's in the mikveh preparing himself spiritually. It's all beautiful. But if he doesn't come home to his wife and kids, fill up a cup of wine, or it doesn't have to be wine. It could be grape juice. And if you have a problem with alcohol and sugar, it could be challah. It could be matzah. The laws tells you what it could be. And if you don't just lift it and make the kiddush, say the words, make the blessing, then you didn't sanctify the Shabbat. You can feel so beautiful about Shabbat. You can feel so connected with Shabbat. But guess what? If you don't wear special nice clothes on Shabbat, you did not fulfill the commandment of you shall remember Shabbat and you should heed Shabbat. If you don't eat on Shabbat, you're fasting because what greater day to fast than on the spiritual day of total disconnection with physicality, you actually transgress the sin because you have to eat and you're supposed to eat with bread, you're supposed to eat with fish, and you're supposed to eat with meat or chicken. So Religion seems to be just a bunch of a constitution. It's the Jewish constitution. But it's not. Because there are people who do the motions and do the actions all their life for decades. They are so careful with every single cross T dotted I of the law. And yet, they've never experienced the spirituality of Judaism. Why so? Because the definition of the word mitzvah, the word mitzvah, what does that word mean? And our sages tell us it means it's a connection. I want to share with you something that I just read recently, written by the person who would happen to. He was a big professor and he came to the Rebbe and he told the Rebbe, that he just, he, he's, he struggles with this. He struggles with such a big God being such a finicky identity. What, what is going on here? What is God so busy, such a great, big, omnipotent, spiritual, unbelievable God? Why is he so busy with the littlest tri trivial things? You have to do this, you have to do that. You have to do it this time, you can't do it at that time. If you didn't do it this way, you didn't do it that way. If a letter craft, if, if it doesn't have fins and scales, or, or you didn't, why? What, what is God busy with? And he said he struggles. He struggles with the whole religion. And the rabbi told him like this. The rabbi told him, you think the mitzvahs are rules? You think they're commandments that God's telling us you have to do it my way? This is not at all. What God is telling you is that I'm going to share with you how things work for me. And I'm giving you the opportunity to do the same. And this way, we'll both be in the same place at the same time, connected. Now, I can tell you that if you tell this concept to many a people with very expensive golden robes and with the big fur hats and with the long, beautiful, white, regal beard and payas, they're going to look at you like you're off the wall. And I'm not, I'm not belittling anyone. I'm just sharing that we study in yeshiva so much the anatomy and the methodology of, of extrapolating laws and details. And then you have a whole different brand of people that they think that the stricter they can make it, the more holier they are. And when someone says, no, this is permissible, ah, shake it. You don't even know what you're talking about. This is not because this could be this and that and do da da. And the guy is salivating how happy he is that he made life more difficult as a Jew because he is sacrificing himself for God. Where? What? What is religion? Is religion a self-perfection book? Is religion a way to manipulate God into giving you what you want? 
Is religion a way to make sure that in the afterlife you're going to heaven? Everything I just said has nothing what to do with God. And if it has nothing what to do with God, it has, it's not religion. So first understand what religion is. Religion is an offering from God telling us that I'm going to share with you myself and how I function and what is for me that I have chosen. And I'm letting you in on this so that you can have a connection as a physical, mortal, decomposing human being, egocentric, self-centered. I'm giving you the opportunity to be connected with me. A whole different understanding of religion. Now let's talk about spirituality. I have heard things said about spirituality that's wow. So in preparation for this class, I decided to turn to Webster. What does Webster say about spirituality? And Webster says about spirituality that it is about living focused with the soul and the spirit of the human rather than with the physical body of the human. Now I'm gonna share with you that in many different circles, spirituality and atheism can coexist because they see spirituality as the ultimate, the ultimate core soul of humanitarian, which means to be selfless. And many people in recovery, they will define. It's a spiritual program. You have to be, live a spiritual life. What's that? What that means is selfless. Think less of yourself and more of the other. When you deal with the, the real, you know, high caliber martial artists, you talk about the, the Shaolin priests, they find spirituality as in complete control of mind and heart, opening up to the energy. They don't believe in a God, they believe in a energy. And hence, if you believe in that energy, you don't kill a cockroach because a cockroach is from the same energy that the humans is. There's something sacred here. Okay. What is spirituality? What does it mean? I'm going to take you to chapter 32. And here we're going to see the Alter Rebbe's ultimate definition of spirituality. In chapter 31, he talks about something very simple. There is a mitzvah to love your fellow as yourself. Now that is an impossible mitzvah because from the very perspective of you and I, what's you is not I and what I is not you. So hence, we're an infringement on the expansion of each other's existence. So what do you mean I should love you the way I love myself? Myself I love, it's my existence. How can I love you that way if you are the epitome of myself? You're the opposite. You're the outside of my existence. And hence, you always have this process of the, of the red ocean theory in business in which you have to get all the customers that your competition has because every customer that he has, you don't have. How are you supposed to get along with your competition? How are you supposed to even send people to your competition? So therefore, the Alter Rebbe says something very simple. He says, you will never be able to be spiritual enough to love your fellow if your physical is your primary identity of self and your spiritual, your soul is just the life force to that physical body. So now the question becomes, who do I identify myself as? Am I a physical human being that just has enough divinity in me to keep me alive? Or am I, and again, I quote a beautiful line from recovery, a divine being having a human experience. Hence, I am a divine being. But in order to function down here, God gave me the gift of a human experience. Now, what does that mean? Very simple. There is no complex God. It just doesn't exist. 
The truth is that God is simplicity. Hence, every piece of God is identical. Even more than that, every piece of God is a piece of each other and a piece of one whole. Hence, the only way I can love you as myself is realizing that you are myself and I am you. And the only way I can realize that is if I can see that my physicality is nothing more than a leased car. It's not who I am. I get out of the car. I return the car. I just use the car to get places. And hence, all of a sudden, you can realize that the person driving a Lamborghini and the person driving a Fiat, they are identical. Their vehicles aren't. So when the person in the Lamborghini scarfs and gives this ill look at the person in the Fiat, that person can't be spiritual. That person has now identified himself as physical. He just needs enough spirituality not to die. Just enough divinity to stay alive. However, in the other hand, the person who realizes that ultimately speaking, and again, I want to put a plug in here for addiction recovery. One of the most beautiful things any person will ever experience in recovery is the total, total, total disintegration of I'm Jewish, this guy's Latin, this guy's Muslim, this guy's an atheist, this guy shaves his head, this guy has an earring, this guy curses like a truck driver, this guy is, is, is crazy. When you're in a room leaning on each other as divine beings holding hands to literally get out of hell, you understand what spirituality means. You understand that the lawyer who's making six digits and the indigent who are holding hands saying the serenity prayer, that's a spirituality. That is where two godly souls completely ignore their encasements and just become one. Now, if religion is all about connecting to God and spirituality is all about seeing the other and self as pieces of God, what is religion versus spirituality that only exists in a world of man-made religion and man-made spirituality? It will never exist in a God-made religion and in a God-made spirituality because they are synonymous. It's all about realizing that I am a divine being in a human experience who wants to use the human experience as nothing more than to become transparent and expressive to my divine being. And I'm going to open up now.